podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. Welcome to Run With It, where we bring you business ideas from proven founders. Each episode, you'll hear a new business idea and the exact steps our guests would take to get started. We're your hosts, Chris, Justin, and Ethan Janney. And on today's show, we have Ryan Kuhn. He's the co-founder of Avail, an all-in-one solution designed for do-it-yourself landlords and their tenants. Ryan and his co-founder drew up the idea on a napkin, learned to code, launched in 2012, and have grown steadily ever since, serving 13,000 landlords in 2015 and over 200,000 today. That's all great, Ethan. But you know our show is about new business ideas. Ryan, you have got one to help create digital identities anonymizing the digital world. Ethan, you got me, man. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Tell us about the idea you would like our listeners to run with. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be on the show and to share an idea. The idea that I'm, I'm excited to talk about actually is, I would say, more of a problem that we currently face here with Avail and a proposed solution, but excited to talk with you guys and to kind of flesh it out. So my problem that I have is that there's a lot of individuals out there, there's a lot of digital identities out there floating around in cyberspace that are not connected to the physical identity in the real world. So the the solution for this would be to unanonymize the digital world and to have a better system for tying and tracking digital identities to the underlying person who's sitting there at a computer. I mean, I, I think we're, we're in our business. So we operate in the residential rental space. There's a handful of different ways that fraud and kind of lack of security impact both landlords and renters out there all across the country and around the world. And so one of the things that we run into a lot is different fraud around rental listings. Um, I don't know if uh, Chris or Ethan, if you guys have ever gone on Craigslist and tried to rent an apartment or rent a house, but it's not easy. So. In, New York's, <laughs> in New York City, it's ridiculous, especially. It's terrible. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an awful experience, but one of the challenges out there is that about a third of all those Craigslist ads are actually spammers. They're like fraudulent listings. There's someone who went on Zillow, they grabbed the photos, posted it as for rent, and then says, hey, Ryan, or hey, Chris, or hey, Ethan, like, wire me $1,500 and I will mail you the keys. Unfortunately, people fall for that stuff. There's also a major issue with payments and stuff. And then looking more towards kind of current events and here in the next couple of weeks, we've got a a somewhat important election here in in the States. A little bit, you know. (laughs) A little little bit. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about with COVID, are people going to be comfortable going out and voting in person? I've read a lot about the opportunity and challenges, both with digital voting, and it all comes down to this, like, identity management. So that's that's really the problem. I think there's got to be a solution out there that one of the listeners, someone in the audience can go run with this problem, create a, a, a unique solution to fix this. Here's the thing that's that's just starting to creep me out already, right? Well, first of all, our working title for this business is Unanon. And it's like, um, I feel like just pursuing an idea like this, people are going to think that you are 
part of some sort of government black market cabal trying Big to brother yeah. you know put a chip in everybody's you know toe or whatever so would you pursue this that's what i want to know would you actually pursue this idea <laughs> given that part of it you know maybe there's other difficult parts but would you feel comfortable having to kind of put your reputation out there as a founder of this business and deal with any repercussions that people might have like look at what mark zuckerberg has to deal with with facebook you know yeah, I think it's a great question. And I, I certainly recognize that there's going to be some privacy concerns, some unease around tying your digital identity to your physical identity. But if you go back 100 years, and a lot of communities were based on an individual's reputation, and really relied on an individual to kind of stand by their word and do what they say they're going to do and stand by the words that they put out. And so I actually think there's unfortunately a lot of hate right now that exists on the internet. And I actually think I would, I would almost spin your question, Ethan, and say that while there will be privacy issues that will inevitably come up and will have to be dealt with, I think that actually trying to tie that physical identity to the digital identity will do much more good than harm. Yeah, it reminds me of like credit scores and, and you got a, you got a site like Credit Karma and at least in my current level of awareness around whatever conspiracies are going on behind the scenes, I go to a site like Credit Karma and I'm like, oh, this is cool. You know, I, I get to check up on my credit score. They might give me some suggestions on how I can improve it. And a little tip here, by the way, for anyone listening. And Chris, I think I actually found some for you. There's free money. Well, it's your money waiting for you from the government. So <laughs> why did you this weird aside? I'm so this is right. No, I'm serious. Okay, so listen, listen. <laughs> it's right. called this is a great opportunity to share something with you that I had no in to share with you before because it was just <laughs> weird. <laughs> so just on credit karma, just this is totally aside. Creditkarma.com, you go there, and there's this little thing that they have of a list of other things that they offer. And one of them is find like money that the government has. Cause like if you have like an unpaid bill, like a bill that was paid, but you needed a refund or something like that, and you disconnected with the you know, whatever the utilities company, they have to give that money to the government. And, and it's like sitting on hold for you. You go to these sites and you type in your name and the secretary of state, or whoever manages that will, will say, oh, you have, you know, about a hundred bucks from the local um, utility company. And Chris, I looked you up <laughs> <laughs> and you do have some money. If you look it up, you've got yeah. some money coming uh, to yeah? you. We got like a couple hundred about, bucks recently. It's it only tells you like it tells you like maybe a hundred bucks or or more. It'll say you like less than a hundred bucks or more than a hundred bucks. But I would I think you had something that looked interesting. Yeah. This sounds like a fishing scam, Ethan. <laughs> I got the money in the, I, I swear I really yeah, got give the me money all your personal information. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. I think it'd okay. be good to um Ryan you clearly have a, a good understanding of why this is a problem and, and the benefits that would have. And we've got a, a superficial understanding of that, but maybe move a little bit more slowly through exactly how beneficial it would be to have a digital identity in place. And I, I guess I'm thinking about it from the perspective of someone who's hearing this for the first time and I hear, okay, yeah, I mean, we should be able to vote. We, this, we've got this antiquated system where we have to go in person and 
yeah, I can see how there's some fraud out there for renting apartments, but how hard is it really to have some username that's tied to me? And how is that a business? And really, like, why is that so beneficial? I, I think, unfortunately, fraud is, is a big problem out there, not only in our world here at Avail, but I know the FBI has put out some statistics that show that, that fraud-related issues cause, it's something like $25 billion a year in lost funds and, and fraudulent payments. And so- Yeah, we almost saw it happen right here with Ethan. He's about to <laughs> scam me of a hundred bucks. Yeah, get a hundred bucks, but give me your social security <laughs> number, you know? Where I, I really think that there, there's going to be a business that can somehow track this down and should be able to, to more closely match and tie person's identity to their digital presence and put in safeguards so that if one of, if Ethan over here tries to go and steal your identity, then when he goes and tries to pretend that he's Chris Justin, there should be red flags that go off everywhere. All right. So you've got hands-on experience just diving into something that you have no idea how to approach. You and your co-founder have done that with Avail. What lessons could apply to jumping into this completely new idea? I think from our experience building Avail, there's, there's three things that really are needed and it takes to launch any business. And so if someone out there is listening to this and they're going to go try and unanonymize the digital world, what they should, what I think would lead someone to be successful are three things. So number one, they have to have a good understanding of the problem. My email is ryan at avail.co. Like email me, I can tell you all the ins and outs about this problem. Get yourself very familiar with the problem. Understand it, feel the pain, look at this, obsess over this. Number two, you've gotta go out and get the skills that it takes. Whether it entails becoming a, a digital privacy expert or becoming kind of a legal junkie studying up on all the GDPR, all the CCPA stuff, understanding exactly kind of all the rules, regulations, technical skills. For me personally, what that entailed was actually spending about three years learning Ruby on Rails. I, I fortunately, before starting Avail, had a good understanding of the problem that we were trying to solve. I understood the real estate industry. I understood like exactly what we were trying to do and accomplish didn't know the first thing about starting a digital company. And so what that meant for me is I had to go out and get skills. My co-founder did the same. We spent about two and a half years like cooped up in our apartments here in Chicago, just like learning to write code. So number two- I just need I gotta to interrupt here. I'm so sorry, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what you're gonna say, Chris, but okay, first of all, I'll just, just to summarize what we've got so far, understand the problem, get the skills that it takes. I know so many people, myself included, who decided to learn to code to start a particular business or whatever, and just went nowhere. So I, I'm just, um, I'm just curious. Okay, first of all, the idea for Avail came before you learned how to code. True. Yep. Okay. And then, how confident were you that you were actually going to do Avail with these programming skills that took you two or three years to learn? Were you, were you in the back of your mind, were like, oh, well, listen, I'm going to learn a marketable skill either way. We'll, we'll do anything with this. I mean, that's a lot of time to put in before you make a dollar on a, on a project, right? And, and most people, when they put that amount of time in, they walk out of it saying, 
I'm a dumbass. <laughs> my question is going to piggyback off that too. It's very similar. It's uh, that's a long time to spend on it. How were you scared at all in that process that someone else would swoop in and do that idea before you guys learned how to code and could launch it? Yeah, I, I will say, and, and that was a painful couple of years. It was, it was definitely a big investment. In hindsight, glad I did it. But at the time, there was, uh, of course, that like doubt, both internally, there's that doubt, several girlfriends that, that I broke up with me, like, you know, they obviously doubted it too. And we're wondering what I was up to, but nice show them now. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny about it though is is Ethan, almost as you mentioned, that that was part part of the thinking. So my co-founder and I, we had this idea and this problem that we wanted to solve. He and I were fortunate. We we had a, a set amount of money that we said, okay, we're going to invest this money into launching this business. And we approached this problem and we said, look, we don't know how to write code in order to launch a software product. Like you kind of need either to know how to code or you need to pay someone to do it. So our thought process and actually going through this was really saying, okay, there's this fixed amount of money that we're going to invest in the business. We can, option number one is we can go out and hire someone. We can hire a, a freelancer. We can hire a a creative agency, we can hire, you know, our friends who know how to code, we can go that route. And then if avail works out great, we maybe saved ourselves a year or some amount of time. We also looked at it and said, Hey, there's a second option. Second option is we could essentially use that money that we would pay someone else. And in kind of a, a circular way, we could like pay ourselves and we could use that startup capital as we were paying ourselves to learn how to code in order to launch the business. And we ended up going that second path because at the end of the day, if Avail didn't work out, Ethan, almost like you said, we would still have a marketable skill and we could either go start another business or we could go get a job as a software engineer, but we would actually like walk away with something as opposed to that first option I mentioned if we had just paid someone to do this and the business didn't work out, we'd be sitting here broken with nothing. So a follow-up question, and I don't think this is going for too far off the rails with not talking about this particular business idea, because I think it could be helpful to the person listening. So in terms of the way that you learned how to code and the investment, first of all, how much money did you invest up front of you guys' own money? And then also, did you have some cool hack for you had like a private coding tutor or did you just guys just get on, you know, one of these coding tutorial sites and go? Yeah. So to your first question, Lawrence and I were fortunate. We had both been pretty thrifty early on and in our investment, careers. Invest, had, working in investment banking. That's give you yeah, a little we, bit of cash, I guess. We had, had saved a little bit. So I think he and I initially each put in like $20,000. At, at the time in, in your late 20s, that's that was real money. I mean, it still is. That's a lot to invest in a business. So combined, we had $40,000. $40, we said, this is our startup capital. And so with that, we then said, okay, what's the shortest path to learning to code? For me personally, I went through one of these really intense coding boot camps. Uh, so went through this Ruby on Rails course back in the day in Chicago 
it was called Code Academy, later became the Starter League, was this like really good experience, spent, you know, five days a week, shoulder to shoulder with other men and women who wanted to learn how to write code. That for me was, was the best path. And that was a three-month program. And then the, the kind of following 21 months, the next almost two years, it was really just a lot of trial and error. It was building a lot of Twitter clones, learning Twitter bootstrap, learning Ruby on Rails, like spending countless hours going through different things on Stack Overflow, which is this online. I was your girlfriend. I would have dumped you at that point for sure. Like a Twitter did. clone. She did. You're building a Twitter <laughs> clone. You said you were starting a real estate site. What is this Twitter clone thing? Yeah. Oh man. That's awesome though. Um, it's it's amazing. It's a great story. It's very inspiring. And and the sort of level of commitment that you guys have had. I want to make sure that we're staying on track with your three bullet point thing, just to refresh yep. the listener here. So we started with you had some three key factors that would take the business. You said understand the problem, get the skills that it takes. Let's let's go to the third one, unless you have a little bit more about. So we'll, we can talk more about what skills they are. But what what was what's the third factor that you think is really important? Yeah, third factor really important: persistence. Just don't give up. Anytime you're starting a company, anytime you're really embarking on anything that's challenging, there will inevitably be be people who dump you, that call you names, that say you're stupid, that don't believe in in what it is you're doing. But just don't give up. I might have stayed with you if I was your girlfriend. <laughs> you sound like you're a charismatic guy. <laughs> you could probably the way you talk about commitment and you know and all that. Yeah, don't giving up. Focus on the long term. Yeah. I want to ask you about identifying this problem a little bit because you are in such a great position to be able to speak to its worth. And you mentioned up at the top of the episode that this digital identity would be really beneficial for your business itself. Can you give us a sense for how much uh, you can answer how much you would pay, how much it would save you, what percentage of your costs are associated with managing digital identities? For us, again, here at Avail, we spend a lot of time focused on digital identities. Obviously, every month we're moving tens of millions of dollars in rent payments from renter to landlord. Along the way, we have had some small issues with payment fraud and someone saying they're someone else who they aren't really that person and maybe found a bank account information out there on the dark web and like tried to kind of steal funds. Essentially, it's, it's theft. Now, over the past five years since we launched the company, we've invested really heavily in, the, in kind of combating this and we continue investing in this. And so for me... It is a problem that we still face and, and these like spammers and fraudsters are still trying to beat our system every day. Um, we've got countermeasures in place now that I wish we didn't have to invest. I, I can't even put numbers on it. It's like maybe an engineer and a half uh, per, for almost full time. It's like, we, we invest a lot in this like digital security, digital privacy, digital like combating fraud. So let's call that 200 grand a year for 10 years or so. Yeah, that's a, a fair statement, but, but it's not only us, it's like every other company like us. Right. 
And that's interesting. So there's the uh, the cost that you're spending in preventing this from happening. There's the direct cost of theft. In terms of relative scale, would you say that the theft is an order of magnitude lower, about the same, higher? I would say over the past 18 months to two years, we've gotten really good at this. And our loss rate to fraud is a, a small fraction. I mean, it's less like... 0.00002% of like all payments we process. Like sure. it, it's very immaterial today. So the, the other angle that I want to take on this is if you wanted to disrupt a company like Avail, they have spent all this time and money to uh, protect against fraud. And, and this is true for any company in the financial services space. Uh, that's to me, one of the biggest barriers to starting a company like this is you have to figure out how to protect people's identities and their money. And if you had a, an affordable solution out there that you can plug into your system, then that could save you years of, of heartache in addition to, uh, to the direct financial costs. And it, it can make the difference between you starting that business or not. That's a reference so point too, just want to call out I feel like Stripe is probably doing a really great job at this, you know, and then I think that's really probably one of the most difficult parts that Stripe had to tackle in terms of also the logistics, but the security side of it, I, you know, I use Stripe for a few different businesses and I'm, I'm always pretty amazed at like the whole security process seems pretty laid back uh, with Stripe, meaning it just seems like they kind of got a lot of it figured out such that if a payment isn't supposed to go through, it just doesn't go through. You know, it's not like somebody's money gets taken. They just have fail safes against this type of thing happening. And I think that's probably also what's going on with your business too, right? It's not, you're saying, you know, maybe 0.0002% of the time there's some money lost, but that's actual money lost. But then there's sort of pretend situations in which money would have been lost, but it was somehow rescued by the fact that you have a staff of one and a half developers you know, covering this or whatever you're investing in to cover this. So it's kind of like this stuff happens, but it doesn't because it stopped. But you, it, there, <clears throat> if there weren't trials, if there weren't attempts, then you wouldn't need any of these uh, measures, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's true, Ethan. And I do think Stripe does a great job with this. I'm I'm assuming that in the back end, Stripe is plugging into a lot of other different data sources out there to try and kind of pull all this together. They also do a lot of machine learning on top of all of the different transactions that are running through their system. So unfortunately, though, I think a lot of that information uh, kind of lives within Stripe. And Stripe has used that to essentially develop their moat around their business. I I wish that this were more of kind of a, a utility for public good, however that would make the overall internet a little bit more safe, more secure, uh, less hatred, more efficiency, more transparency. That's really interesting because that uh, to take the, the evil side of that, that means that someone out there who, were, who would start this business, there's a good chance that they'd be acquired and it'd be, uh, they'd walk off with you know, millions of dollars. And the idea is kept from the rest of the world because someone like, Mint buys it or something like that. I want to come back to the actual actions here that a listener can take to get going. You gave us this framework, which is great for guiding principles. 
let's get into the weeds a little bit. What is something that, so someone's going to identify the problem and you, you've already got that figured out. So they need to do a little bit more research. There's plenty of reading that people can do to close that gap. And then in terms of what those skills are, do you have some of them offhand for the, the second stage that you think that someone would need to, to pursue? Well, I, I think it's all, and, and what I would say is I think even taking a step back, Chris, to number one, I think there's a lot of trying to understand who's the customer. And if um, a listener goes out there and looks at the FBI report that says, hey, there's something like $25 billion per year lost to fraud. Like I would really try and dig in and say, where is that money going? Like who's losing it? Is it PayPal and Venmo that are somehow losing people's money or like who is the end customer? Is it a bunch of companies like Avail? I would go out and I would talk with all of those people, trying to understand the pain points, understand what solution it is that they want. That will inform a lot of the, the second part here where of course there's like all the legal kind of issues around privacy, security, PII, like tackling all of those things. Um, but then a lot of the different skills that you would need are largely determined by what is it you're trying to build? Can it run off of this like really elaborate Google sheet or does it need to be custom built software that's hosted on AWS that you're going to need data scientists to like parse everything? I mean, that I think so much of, of the, the skills and the tools that you need are, are driven by what it is you're trying to build. I want to go in, I'm going to take this a little bit more abstract here. I'm struck by how clear this all is in your head of, of what needs to be done. And I think one of the challenges for an aspiring entrepreneur is they've gone through the schooling system and they've had these rubrics handed to them that say, do this. And if you do this, you do it well, you get an A, but you're making your own rubric along the way. And you're clearly good at it. Either you have always been good at it or you figured out how to be good at it. Trial and error. (laughs) Yeah, trial and error. I'm going to, I want to say the word boondoggle. How does this not feel like a boondoggle? You guys familiar with that word? (laughs) That's it. Louisiana. I lived in New Orleans for a few years, several years. And that's, uh, you go out on your, you know, like a Don Quixote quest to go do something that is not necessarily tied to some actionable end results. And you did that. I mean, you went, you learned how to code for two and a half years without any, any uh, formal system to keep you on that path. Someone's got to, it seems like you have to be extraordinarily disciplined to both figure out, uh, to figure out what needs to be done and stick to it for so long. You talked about this a little bit, but <laughs> I'm, I'm still just struck by it. Maybe your, your assertion that it feels like a boondoggle and it feels like, just this like haphazard, try it, try certain things, see what happens. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, that's, that's hashtag startup life. You know, it's like, um, that, that is a lot of what it is. And, and a lot of you're, you're running essentially the scientific method over and over. You, you have a hypothesis, you run a couple of tests and you look at the results and you see what the feedback is. And that determines the next move on the chessboard. And I think looking at life that way um, both puts some structure around it. 
it puts some kind of framework around how you can think about things, but also gives plenty of opportunity for creative thinking because you have to have a certain amount of just instinct and creativity to come up with, well, what's the hypothesis? What are the possible solutions that I want to test? And then you have to really be honest with yourself and look at the data and say, hey, it's time to cut my losses. Like this thing isn't working. And so for us here at Avail, like one, one good like lesson that we learned early on, everyone said, hey, direct mail is the best way to reach landlords. And we tested it. We had like five different creatives that we came up with. Everything from this will make this product will make you a better landlord to we actually had a version that we mailed to people and in big letters on this postcard, it said, you are a terrible landlord. And like we've, we've tested everything and we found certain things, certain messages work, certain things don't. And you have to just like remain optimistic and keep a positive attitude and just, you know, persistence, don't give up. Do those tests, are you one of those guys who creates this like 40 page business plan first, and then uh, you, you put all these tests into that business plan to, to work it out? Or are you, you know, just find the ground running? A little bit of both. Early on, as, as a trained finance person, as, a, as someone with an undergrad degree in finance and accounting, um, we went at building this business with that 40-page business plan. We very quickly realized, hey, everything that we thought we knew was wrong. So throw it out, forget about it. And now it's kind of this, um, there was a long period where it was a little bit more ad hoc decision-making just see what works, live each day for that day and live to fight another day. Now with a company with 200,000 landlords, half a million renters, we've got a 40 person team, we've got millions of dollars in annual revenue, like we've got outside investors, we've got to be a little bit more thoughtful and deliberate about what we do. So the pendulum is almost swinging back to that, like how do we create our three-year roadmap? How do we you know, break that into bite-sized chunks that our team can really understand and go execute against. You know, when you're talking about trial and error and testing, maybe think of this obscure interview I came across if, if a listener can find it, it's really interesting to listen to. So it's, it's with a guy that wrote a sales letter, you know, when sales letters and they actually used to send out letters to people's houses, you know, made, you know, a ton, a ton, a ton of money. And the interview was about how that, sales letter made a lot of money. And when, I don't know about anybody else, but if I, when I went in listening to it, I thought they were going to talk a lot about the copy. Like, here's the words that we used. And, you know, this is why this, you know, this phrase converted a lot of people, but pretty much the entire interview was around their very scientific method of figuring out which people. So uh, the product was, it was, uh, ancestry plaques, right? So it would go, hi, you know, Chris, Justin, well, your family name, you know, has a, a we have a, a, a seal for your family name, you know, and uh, we'll send you a plaque with it. And of course, Chris, I'm if sure- If you try to scam me no like this, application. I, I'm in, no, I, I, want a, I want a seal so bad. And that would be front, <laughs> the front center in my house if you could scam me that Are way. Are you serious? 
Yeah, hell yeah. I, I want a coat of arms. Who doesn't want that? I want a coat of arms. This is why it's so, so that this, they just knew that this was a thing that appealed to people, right? And that's there's ancestry.com. Like this is this company, this actual sales letter and product were bought by ancestry.com eventually. But the thing was not about the letter, it was about who do you send it to in order to make it profitable, right? You don't, you can't send it to people with very common names. And you can't send it to people with very rare names because you lose postage and, you know, like, it's just like, and then how, how do you make, so it was all a lot less about what was actually in the letter and more about being scientific about testing. How can you optimize? How is this actual, this letter sent out and who's going to reply and who's not going to, and things like that. That's I found that that's actually true in online advertising as well. If you're running Facebook ads, much more of it comes down to finding the right people to put the ads in front of than than the copy itself. By the way, I found I found out, of course, with Facebook ads, you can't say something like "you are a bad landlord." <laughs> they don't even <laughs> let you say that. They'll like this ad is rejected. You're, you're, yeah, this, you cannot do that. <laughs> but direct mail, you can at least try it. Yeah, some of those old sales letters. I uh, I've read a blog post about one that. I think was selling the wall street journal and it sold wall street journal subscriptions and just how formulaic that, that letter was. And it's all about like, and here's a guy and this guy became successful and this guy did one thing every day and you can be successful too. If you just do what Jim did <laughs> and it's like, you know, point, point I think they ran that like, letter for like 40 years or something like that. The same letter. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Maybe just a little something interesting. It may be way off track for, for listeners. I know you, you guys, it maybe applies a little bit to what happened with you guys. I know you spent so much time coding and then you had to pivot to marketing. You realized you need to learn marketing. But um, Chris knows about this, I think, and I know about this. People who, who study marketing, they, just, they write out sales letters, you know, sales letters that have grossed a lot of, of income. It, it could just be, you know, an ad from a magazine or a letter that got sent out or just a modern ad that you might see on the internet from a sales page, but just writing it out as a method of learning. So what are the formulas? What's going on here? You know, what, what are the intricate steps? Um, did you, did you guys learn about that? Or first of all, did you have any profit before you, how did you need to learn marketing? That was why we needed to learn it. Um, right. I think to get our initial, say, hundred or couple hundred landlords to use our product, we could go out and we could talk with friends and friends of friends and family and everyone. But then we said, holy cow, if we want this to be a big business, and again, landlords can use our product for free. So if we want this to be a big business, we can't go out and like get onesie twosie landlords. Like we can't go out and these are not big sales, big big enterprise accounts for us. So we need to find ways that we can get landlords at scale. So like last month, for example, we added about 5,000 new landlords to our product. And I want to jump in the, um, your pricing here. Uh, you've got a, a freemium model. The uh, unlimited plus plan is what you're charging $5 per unit. So for the listener out there who's hearing that, you can do some mental math for, uh, for what that's worth. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think for us, I mean, we had to learn marketing really early on and we spent a lot of time going through some of the Google courses that they put out as part of their, their academy around here's how to learn AdWords and here's how to run campaigns and here's how to set up 
your AdWords account. Um, everything to looking at some of the top marketing blogs. So everything from Neil Patel and really trying to like learn it. And one of the things I'll say around around marketing is I think there's there's that scientific method approach that you can be really successful. There's also a lot of psychology that goes into it is is what I've come to learn and and how important understanding your persona and really trying to get inside their head and how critical that is. We're coming up on time here. Experimental question for you, Ryan. If you could go back in time to before you had started Avail and you could give yourself 15 to 30 seconds worth of advice, what would you say? I think if I could go back and give myself that like 15 second, 15 to 30 seconds uh, of advice, I would really probably talk about how, um, how important persistence is. I know we talked about that earlier. It's one of our core values here at Avail. And I think that persistence is so important because there's so much out there in the media and kind of startup world that glorifies and glamorizes these like overnight successes. The reality though, is that 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 rarely if ever happens. And so in order to build a, a real sustainable business that can keep people employed, can ultimately turn a profit if it wants to, it, it takes a long time. It's a big investment. And so many people want to start a business, but maybe aren't in a position to do so or, or don't really want to put in that time. Like there's also nothing wrong with, you know, sticking to, to the nine to five. That, that can be a great option for a lot of people and there's nothing wrong with that. So, but if you are wanting to go down the entrepreneur path, you gotta be willing to put in the hard work. You gotta hard work late nights. Um, one of the quotes that I heard is like, if you wanna sleep like a baby, start a business because you'll be up all night crying. Uh, and so <laughs> there, there's a lot of truth to that. So, so just know what you're getting into if you do go down the path of entrepreneurship, which I do think everyone who wants to should um, just be willing and, and prepared to put in a lot of work. All right. To the listener out there. On that. <laughs> yeah. Would you want to cry? And with that, <laughs> we'll send you off into exactly. entrepreneurship. <laughs> just start crying. You're halfway there. Yeah. Go, to, go out there, take some action, follow through on some of the stuff that we've talked about. You can, you can dabble a little bit here. Uh, or you can dive in, dive in hard. I mean, Ryan made himself available to you. Uh, it's a great opportunity from someone who's who's walked the talk, who's spent those late nights crying, uh, got dumped by his girlfriend. If you, that can be your life, man. This is, this is all there for you. <laughs> so glamorous. <laughs> so glamorous. Yeah, take some action. Let us know what you've done. Email us at update at runwithit.fm. We may feature you on a future episode with that. We may be able to connect you with Ryan Ryan might even become a potential business partner for this idea down the line. Who knows? You might be able to charm him. Ryan, thank you very much for the conversation. Really enjoyed it. Where can listeners go to learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, well, thank you guys so much for having me. If uh, any listener out there wants to connect, shoot me an email. It's ryan at avail.co. Or they can head over. They can learn more about avail at avail.co. We're also on all of the social media channels at helloavail. Great. To the listener, thank you for spending this time with us here. 
If you like the episode, subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a rating, review over there. It really helps other people discover it. And we will see you next week. The podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to transistor.fm slash run, that's R-U-N, and get 15% off your first year.